Um, I don't know. It's been a while since we've been together. I had to remind myself what it is we're studying. First Corinthians. We'll start there. Uh, we are actually in uh, chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. And I am going to probably do a little bit of review to kind of uh, reset our minds in, in the context of what we've been studying and allow us to kind of move forward with a level of uh, clarity and, and sort of uh, consistency. But if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to be kind of focusing our time over the, this week and probably next week in the first 14 verses of that chapter. And thinking about the, so the, the areas of focus in this particular section, uh, I am, what, what comes to my mind as I, I, I look at this passage are the, the many examples that we could point to where there has been an egregious breach of trust uh, perpetrated by those who are in positions of spiritual leadership um, that, takes, that has taken place. It's not a new thing. It's taken place time and time again. There's been many, many occasions where it's been high-profile, newsworthy kinds of things where uh, people who are supposed to be representatives of the gospel, people who are supposed to be spiritual leaders, people who sort of hold leadership influence sway over masses, massive numbers of people uh, are kind of exposed as being nothing short of charlatans and um, greedy people who are just seeking to gain financially uh, off the backs of otherwise faithful people. Um, you think of the sort of the sort of whole tell evangelist TV kind of ministry world where that's been a massive problem, but it goes even beyond that where there's uh, pastors who who have embezzled funds. There's uh, ministers who have basically borne out the fruit of their worldliness and their desire for worldly things and their attachment to the things of this world results in tremendous um, degrees of compromise and, and has tremendous effects, negative effects on the people of God that they're leading. And we come to this particular section and the Apostle Paul is going to be, in a sense, defending the right of the minister of the gospel, the person who devotes his life to gospel ministry, that right of that person to be cared for financially, to be supported financially by the church. And these, these two things sort of come together in this passage, this, this potential for uh, misappropriation of this, of this blessing and this benefit, this right, you might say, uh, coupled with this uh, right indeed that is laid out for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we come to this passage, and I have to say at the outset, um, in working through this passage, uh, this particular, I mean, our church, this, this church, Faith Community Church, um, is very faithful and gracious in its care for those who serve full-time in, in uh, gospel ministry uh, here at this church. Um, very gracious um, congregation, very generous um, congregation. So this, just want to make sure that as I work through this passage, it doesn't sound like I'm kind of lobbying for a raise. I'm not. It's not the case. 
I am going to tell you uh, a little bit about how we go about doing that. I hope hopefully it will be helpful to you to kind of on a practical level to understand how we sort of handle compensation of um, our our paid pastoral staff, and maybe that'll give you some insight into kind of some of our approach and how we try to be uh, objective and and fair and and uh, appropriate and biblical in our approach. But but the point of the matter is is that the apostle Paul in this passage centers much of his attention on this right that he is claiming to be compensated or remunerated, remunerated, remunerated is not the right word, it's remunerated, I'm not going to use that again, I'm done with that, um, for his labors in gospel ministry. So let's pick up the passage, we'll just read starting in verse 1, we'll probably back up a little bit to get some context here in a minute, but starting in verse 1, Chapter 9, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, as we've said before, it's clear in this passage that the Apostle Paul is dealing with this matter of rights. This is a repeated refrain in this chapter. The the term rights is used multiple times throughout this chapter. He's emphasizing this matter of rights, really rights that all center around this principle of compensation for ministry work. It's used six times here uh, in 1 Corinthians, five of which are found right here in this chapter, this mention of rights. You have the other use that's found in chapter 8, which is part of the context. So this whole matter of rights is is uh, preeminent and prominent in this discussion. And of course, chapter 8 serves as the context for chapter 9. You can't really understand chapter 9 without understanding chapter 8. And hopefully, uh, if you've been here, you kind of have some of that framed up in your mind. But just by way of reminder, there were some in Corinth whose consciences were provoked by by other people in the congregation partaking of food that had been sacrificed to idols. 
I'm not sure if any of you were provoked this morning by any of the breakfast food. So you come to this particular passage and many people kind of, their eyes kind of glaze over and they're, they're, it's hard for them to see how does this apply to me. Food sacrifice to idols is not a thing. And so it's important for us to really dig into this discussion and understand it because this particular section and this whole matter of what are our rights as Christians, what are our freedoms or our Christian liberties, takes up the better part of three chapters in 1 Corinthians. So we probably ought to give it some due attention. But nevertheless, you had some in Corinth who were provoked by this practice of eating food sacrificed to idols. You had others who had no problem with it whatsoever. And it created this tension and this conflict in, in the body of Christ there. The fact of the matter is, is that those whose consciences were provoked had a sensitivity to seeing others partake in something that for them associated them with a pagan practice that they were trying to completely distance themselves from. And then you had others who didn't have a problem with it, who, who understood rightfully that food sacrificed to idols wasn't anything, that an idol wasn't anything, that there was nothing problematic inherently in the meat that was available in the market and it was, a, it was served at common community events and marriage feasts and all that kind of thing, that there was nothing inherently wrong with that food, according to the Lord. They had this knowledge, this understanding, and so they weren't bothered by it. But what was taking place is that they had no concern for the fellow believer who was troubled by this particular practice. In fact, they were accused by the Apostle Paul of having a lack of love, and really that was characterized by their arrogance, an arrogant lack of love is, is the way we would probably put it. And so in chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is chiding the Corinthians. He's, he's rebuking them for this self-centeredness, this self-centered abuse of their rights and their liberties. In other words, it was okay to eat food sacrificed to idols as, as, as a particular cultural reality in that day and time. It was not objectively sinful to eat food sacrificed to idols. So those who partook in that practice were in the right in an objective sense. But the Apostle Paul would say there's more to this than just that. The fact is is that when you lack love and concern for your fellow believers, particularly those of maybe a weaker conscience in a particular area, that is indeed a Christian liberty, but you're, you're, you're weak and you, you, you don't have that sense of confidence. Maybe you're not mature yet. Maybe you're new in the faith. Whatever the case may be, for those who are mature or those who have this knowledge, this understanding that this particular practice is not sinful, but yet we engage in the practice to the exclusion of concern for the weaker brother, that's the problem that Paul, the Apostle Paul would say. The issue is the lack of concern and care for a fellow believer, not the rightness or wrongness of partaking of this or that. It's an important distinction that the Apostle Paul is just hammering on as he's chiding these Corinthians because they didn't have any consideration for either their public testimony or for the offenses they were causing their fellow believers. And in fact, he talks about them doing harm to them. They were doing harm to their weaker brothers and sisters around this matter, by just flaunting their liberty. There's no problem with this. What's wrong with this? The Bible doesn't say you can't do this. You've probably heard this or maybe you've even said that before in your own Christian journey. 
What's the problem? The Bible doesn't prohibit this explicitly. Why can't we do it? And it's that kind of mindset that becomes toxic in the fellowship of the church when there's no concern for the conscience of other believers. So this focus then, all the way through chapter 8, is on the Corinthians, but then in chapter 9, he turns the focus to himself. He begins to set himself up as the focal point, and his rights becomes the focus. In fact, he makes this turn of focus from the Corinthians to himself back at the end of chapter 8. So if you pick up the context in chapter 8, look at verse 8 with me, just to kind of gather our thoughts around what was going on here. He says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. There's the transcendent truth principle about this whole matter of food sacrificed to idols. He just says it very succinctly right there. You're not better off if you eat it. You're not worse off if you eat it. It's not a thing. That's the transcendent principle. That's the, that's the reality. But then he says in verse 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So it's not the end of the story. Verse 8 is not the end of the story. It's not a problem. We can eat food sacrificed to idols. End of story. No, not the end of the story. You need to take care so that your, your right to partake in this does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And then verse 10, For if anyone sees you, who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? So in other words, your public testimony and those who are observing you, whether it's weak conscienced fellow believers or the public writ large, it matters. Your public testimony and my public testimony matters. We need to take care, pay attention. That needs to inform our decision-making on these matters. We don't just have the liberty to eat this food because it doesn't commend us or it doesn't take away from our godliness, as it says in verse 8. There's more to it. He says, he gets intense, he says in verse 11, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Here's what we can do when we are insensitive to these matters of conscience within the local fellowship. We can cause destructive harm to fellow believers when by our example, we, we lead them into violating their own conscience. Here's how this would play out. I have a certain conscience issue. I'll put it into some kind of general, easy frame of, let's just call it entertainment. Let's say that I'm a person who has a very strong conscience uh, a, a very, a very, excuse me, a very strong conviction of conscience about certain movie ratings. So let's just say that my threshold is anything. I, I don't even know how to do it today. I mean, anything above like TV four. I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know what the ratings are. But let's just say that PG is my limit. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm noticing stuff even sliding on PG thirteen ratings. I can't even handle that. And you know what? I, I know that I'm, I'm weak, and if I expose myself to this kind of content, it'll just, it'll just provoke me. It'll possibly lead me into temptation. I, I'm just so, that's, my, that's my cutoff. But let's say that someone else ha- doesn't have that kind of conviction, 
They don't, they don't feel like that that's a problem, and so they, they invite someone over and they, who's got this, this challenge with this kind, of, this kind of rating, but they go ahead and they watch this movie that's rated PG-13 and without any regard for the sensitivity of the conscience of that weaker brother or sister. When I say weak, I mean weak in their conscience on this matter. And they basically have a certain disdain for their conviction. It's not that big a deal. There's not, it's not a problem. Don't worry about it. I, I've, I've seen this before. It doesn't have that much bad stuff in it. Don't worry about it. You know, some kind of you know, discussion in, you know, transpires, and they just sort of you know, move past it, and they watch the movie. Well, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that we are not taking care in that scenario of the conscience of a fellow believer, and that can be destructive for them. That's how significant this matter of the conscience is. Basically, what we've talked about in the past is that to the extent that we can provoke or, or, or sort of in some ways weaken further the conscience of a fellow believer, we could put them in a position at some point in the future where that conscience has been weakened And they have other decisions to make about other practices, other actions, other relationships, whatever. They have a weak conscience. Their conscience is not assaulting them and saying, don't go there. Don't do that. Don't associate with that person. Their conscience has been weakened and they press on forward because they don't have that warning system, that God-designed warning system. And we've we've potentially contributed to that weakness that then leads them into more severe consequential actions of sin, which ultimately, if it persists, can put more and more distance between them and their fellowship with the Lord and more and more distance between them and their fellowship with fellow believers. I mean, if you play this out, you continue to play this out, you can see why the Apostle Paul would say, if it, you sin, you're sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, and you're sinning against Christ, that you, you could destroy this person, he says in verse 11. It's that severe. It's that substantial. Then in verse 13, he makes the turn, and he begins to focus on himself. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. That's where he turns to the first person, right there in chapter, in chapter 8, verse 13. So, here we go into this particular section where it's all about the Apostle Paul, and it's all about him claiming that he has these rights. He focuses on his rights through the entirety of chapter 9. So to these Corinthians who are arrogantly flaunting their rights and liberties without any consideration of their weaker conscience brothers or sisters or their public testimony, Paul will now say to them, you think you have rights? Let's talk about my rights for a minute. That's the nature of the turn in this passage. That's sort of the rhetorical shift that's about to take place. You want to talk about your rights? Let's talk about my rights for a minute. Not just let's talk about my rights that I'm just going to shout from the mountaintops and say, I have rights. Let's talk about the depth and extent and completely justified nature of my rights as compared to your rights. These rights that I willingly set aside for my fellow believer. 
This is a pointed form of rebuke using this rhetorical shift into the first person talking about his rights. Because the focus here is not on the Apostle Paul specifically saying, I have a right as a minister of the gospel to receive compensation from you, Corinthian church. He is making that case. But what he's ultimately saying is, this is a right of mine. And I'm going to show you that it's a right. But it's the right that I willingly and gladly set aside so as not to cause a weaker brother to fall or to stumble. And to not put any barrier in front of the advancement of the gospel. And so this whole, this whole section, yes, it's about remuneration. I said I wasn't going to use that word. Remuneration. But it's more importantly or more significantly an illustration of the character that we should have when it comes to Christian liberties. It's not just about stating with accuracy the rights that we have, the freedoms that we have, and then pressing ahead in those freedoms, making sure that we've nailed down the fact that this is not explicitly prohibited by Scripture. It's not specifically disobedient to God for me to do this. No, there's more things that we have to consider, and prominently in that consideration are fellow believers that are around us and where they are on these liberties and on these matters. And that should be preeminent, so much so that the Apostle Paul would say, let me tell you about my rights that I willingly laid aside. And by the way, when you think about the nature of these rights that he is going to defend... We're talking about sustenance. We're not just talking about a preference for steak. Of, uh, you know, of food sacrificed idols, of a certain kind of food. We're talking about livelihood. Much more significant right that he was willing to lay aside. So this, this basically sets up the, the broad sort of outline of this whole chapter. You kind of see this point or this principle summarized in verse 12. He, said, he says, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. This is the, 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 the thrust of his point here. You have rights? Let me talk about rights for a second. These rights that I willingly set aside. So the broad outline for our discussion here in chapter 9 is simply this. We've entitled this study, Rights Obtained, Defended, and Surrendered. So let's, let's kind of talk for a minute about the rights obtained and defended. And that's basically what we see in verses 1 to 14. Our first broad principle in verses 1 to 14, rights obtained and defended. Note that he is mounting a defense. We talked about this last time we were... In the chapter a few weeks ago, there is this use of sort of legal or judicial language. He, he says in verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Both defense and examine are sort of legal terms there. They're sort of judicial terms. This idea of defense or apologia, that, that term from which we get the word apologetics, this, this area of doctrine of, of defending the faith, of defending the reasonableness of the faith. We talked about that from 1 Peter chapter 3 last time we were together. And then this term examine, uh, anacrino, to conduct a judicial hearing or to hear a case or a question. So this is the Apostle Paul defending a case, making a case, defending his rights. It's clearly in the language of the text. This is not Paul being defensive. 
It's not Paul sort of you know, getting his ire up a little bit because he's frustrated with the Corinthians. No, he is mounting an apologia, an apologetic for the rights that he has. He's mounting a defense. He's not merely, as I said, defending the right of spiritual leaders or those who have devoted their lives to ministry within the church to be compensated for their labors, though that is what he's doing. He's defending the example that he is trying to set for the Corinthians. He's he's saying, one, of all people, I'm one who possesses these kinds of rights that should not be taken away from me, that cannot be taken away from me. And yet I'm willing to surrender those rights. So we want to look at these rights that the Apostle Paul is claiming and, and what they're based upon. And as I said, these rights that he uses, they're, they're mainly to illustrate his point about his surrendering of these rights, his willingness to do that. But as I said, they center around this matter of financial support for those who devote their lives to the ministry of the gospel. And this, of course, becomes clear. We've already kind of read the text together, but it becomes clear that this is the focal point of his illustration here, this, this matter of, of compensation or being financially cared for by those whom you serve as a full, fully devoted minister of the gospel. It becomes clear as you kind of work through his defense here. And what you see is his defense is mounted in the form of rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions, the kind of questions where he's not expecting an answer. He's just putting them out there to make the point. The answer, in other words, to these questions is obvious. And he just peppers them with these questions. And it's interesting that he's making a defense, but he's also assuming the the position of the prosecuting attorney. So his defense is in the form of prosecution. I'll ask you the questions right now basically what he does. So, what are these rights? What are they based upon? Well, the first thing we looked at a little bit last time, we'll look at it a little bit more today, is there, there, he has this right to compensation or care from the local church on the basis of his validated apostolic authority, on the basis of the fact that he is a legitimate apostle. And you see this in the first line of questioning here in in chapter 9, verse 1, and really the whole principle continues down through verse 6. He says, am I not free? You want to talk about freedom? What about me? Am I not free? And then he presses the point further. Am I not an apostle? So this is an interesting turn for the apostle Paul. I think I alluded to this a little bit last time we were together. But the Apostle Paul is loathe. If you read any of his epistles, you know that he is loathe to sort of pull rank on the people he's writing to. But this is what he does here. And you've done that probably before in your life. If you're a parent, you've had to do this. Raise your hand, parent, if you've ever used this phrase, because I said so. Right? There's only some of you that are honest in raising your hands. I could have said that's a rhetorical question. Don't raise your hands. I know the answer. Um, but oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes that can happen, that kind of you know, 
silly, somewhat silly example in parenting, that kind of, of rank pulling, if you will, can happen when the argumentation that's coming at you is, has gotten to a point or a level of, of absurdity where there's no progress being made to reason with this other person. There, there's no moving the needle on them understanding why you are making the decision that you're making, why you are directing the course that you're directing, whatever it might be. And so finally you just have to say, because I said so, just do it. And the Apostle Paul, by testimony of what you read from him all throughout the epistles and even in 1 Corinthians, he is, as I said, loath to do that. And I think any faithful leader is loath to use that as some kind of tool or weapon to kind of move things along or to press an agenda. In fact, faithful spiritual leaders are often willing to be rebuked themselves to be uh, disrespected and reviled for lengthy periods of time insofar as it's not causing harm to the body of Christ or to those whom they're called to protect. Willing to do that for the sake of peace and unity in the body of Christ unless it gets to a point where authority has to be exercised in a final kind of way. And that's what the Apostle Paul does here. He begins to state his authority or his rank over them. You think you have rights? Let me talk to you about rights. Am I not an apostle? And what he means by that is not just that he was a a missionary sent to bring the gospel to them. He's using the term apostle as as a technical designation. He He is referring to his apostleship. The fact that he was himself called and commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ personally. That's what he's saying here. He's he's pulling that kind of rank. He goes on to say, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? This is a clear reference to the Apostle Paul stating, I am speaking to you with full authority as an apostle, one who was called directly by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, reference Acts chapter 9, of course, in that Damascus Road experience. By the way, I thought of this too. You know, some people have said before, it was like I had a Damascus Road experience. Have you ever heard that before? I had this Damascus Road. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. Uh, It might feel that way in some spiritual sense, but what happened with the Apostle Paul, as you all well know, is that he was trotting along with other people to go persecute Christians, and the resurrected Christ himself appeared to him visibly in physical form and blinded him and he was thrown from his horse. This is all cast in historical narrative with a real horse and a real person and real blinding light and a real sore bottom when he fell. All of it visceral and real. And this is what happened to the Apostle Paul. He's not talking about some spiritual experience here as the only means by which he has seen the Lord. He had other uh, experiences of seeing the Lord in vision, but the first experience for sure was physical, so much so that he was blind for a while. And so when when he's saying that I'm an apostle, or asking this question, I should say, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? He is exerting his apostolic authority here. 
And the other evidence is not just that he has seen the Lord, which is, by the way, a qualification for uh, an apostle. If you go to Acts chapter 1, when, when they were trying to replace Judas, that was one of the qualifications, that they had seen the Lord. They were a witness of the resurrected Christ. So this, this is what I mean by it being a technical reference point to his apostolic authority. It's not just a statement of you know, how he's known to them, some kind of you know, superficial title, the Apostle Paul. It is a technical designation of the authority that was invested to him by the Lord Jesus himself as he called him and then commissioned him in this work. But then he gives this other sort of verification of his apostolic authority, he says, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? The very fact that we're having this discussion, the very fact that I'm writing this letter to you, the very fact that you are asking me these questions that is prompting many elements of this letter is the proof, it's the verification of my apostleship. We wouldn't be having this dialogue. You wouldn't be asking these questions. I wouldn't be sending you these letters and communicating to you the doctrine that the Lord God has taught me if it weren't for the fact that I came to you originally and brought the gospel to you and the Lord graciously opened your eyes and you came to faith in Christ. You were redeemed and now you're gathered in this body called the church who is at Corinth. You are the seal. You are the evidence of my apostleship of my legitimate apostolic authority. This idea of a seal, my workmanship in the Lord, and the seal of my apostleship is this idea of authenticity. That's what the seal represented. This this idea of the seal was to to verify its authenticity. So he's just simply saying, you of all people should know that I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. The very fact that, we're, that you're even able to engage around these matters with me, your very salvation is testimony, is evidence, is the seal of that apostolic authority. And so this is my defense to anyone who would examine me. And then he goes into the practical matters, for example, starting in verse 4. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? This is not just a reference to eating and drinking as a general practice. This is a reference to sustenance. That's what he's referring to here. He's getting into this argument about the right that he has as a commissioned apostle, one who has devoted himself completely to the ministry of the gospel based upon the call of God himself. He's, he's beginning to mount this argument that he has this right to sustenance, and that sustenance ought to be provided by those to whom he is ministering. This is where he's going to go with that. And then he, he extends it. He says in verse 5, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So he's basically now aligning himself with the rest of the apostles. Again, that apostolic authority is, is his alignment or his association, his, the affirmation of these other apostles as him being a fellow apostle. But he, he extends this, this, this argument about sustenance, this argument about support, to this principle of support of a family. That's what he's referring to there when he says, do I not have the right to take along a believing wife. Now, of course, we know that the Apostle Paul was not married. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and that long discussion about marriage, and he talks about the gift of singleness that he has. It's probably likely that his wife, he had, was previously married, and his wife 
has since died, but he's just, he's just articulating the right that for those who have devoted themselves to the gospel ministry, not only do they have a right to just the bare necessities, food and drink, but they have the right to the kind of support that would enable them to take along with them in their ministry a believing wife. It, it, the implication there is a, is a family. This is moving, this is moving sort of the, the idea of the support to appropriate generosity, to appropriate care. Now, obviously, as I said earlier on, we've seen egregious examples, and there's examples all throughout Scripture as well. The Apostle Paul speaks to them as well. But those who pursue gospel ministry out of selfish, greedy gain, for the, for the motivation of greedy gain. And it oftentimes puts a sort of a, a damper on people's perspective about how the church is supposed to understand this principle of care for those who minister the gospel to them in a full, full life of devotion in that enterprise. This, this is moving the, the idea toward appropriate generosity. Now, I, I think that I'm on safe ground to say most of us have probably, um, probably have some experience. Uh, we, we, we have some you know, experience from people that we know. Maybe you've been a part of a church in the past. I, I, I don't know. But where, where there's this almost like this, um, this, this operating but unspoken principle of not wanting to be too generous with the pastor, right? You don't want to go too far with that kind of thing. And of course, you know, that is a valid question to ponder. What is the appropriate amount to compensate someone who's a minister of the gospel? But most of the time, the implication is that we want to keep this particular minister right next to sort of the poverty line because we want them to maintain a certain dependence upon the Lord. Like, it's up to us to make sure that that particular ministry, uh, gospel minister, uh, doesn't become, you know, entangled in the, the, the blessings, or excuse me, the, I guess, I guess the, the attachments, the, even the distractions of this world and, and worldly things. And so we're going to kind of make sure that they maintain this humble state and provide for them minimally. But this particular direction here is toward generosity and an and adequate provision for family. So it's just an important point to note, it, note that the Apostle Paul is not placing the onus on the congregation to make sure that they keep the minister faithful and protect them from you know, worldly pursuits as it relates to compensation. He's orienting the the argument around actual need and provision that would free up the minister of the gospel to not only serve in this capacity full on without distraction, but also bring along family to, to, to care for a believing wife, he says. And by the way, he makes that argument plain by saying this is what the other apostles have done. This is, this is how they, they've been taken care of. And they brought along believing wives. He references explicitly the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and even, even Cephas. So this, this apostleship 
grants to him the right to care and provision, financial support and provision, that would be sufficient enough to care for a family. That's the principle here. And he's, he's pressing this point of, of where he is with these Corinthians. It's he and Barnabas that have no right to refrain from working for a living. I don't really like that translation because <laughs> it almost makes it sound like he's saying that gospel ministry is not work. <laughs> Everything else is working for a living, but this is not. But the point is, is he's, talking about, he's talking about his tent-making work. He's talking about the work that he did with his hands that he refers to often. And so, he's using this rhetorical device of questions to sort of heap upon the Corinthians the fact that he has rights that he's not, he's not taking advantage of. In fact, he's, he's set them aside. But the argument that he's making is, no, I do have this right, as does Barnabas. But he goes on, it's not just the right that's based upon apostolic authority, it's also a right that's based upon Common custom. Look at verse 7. He says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? This is just a very practical statement that he's making here. Very practical statement. In other words, those who work in these capacities are compensated for their work. Very basic. It's common custom. Now, it's at this point that I want to provide for you just some practical feedback. There, there is an element that's inescapable here. And that is, how do you go about establishing compensation for ministers? What's the approach? And I can tell you there's no sort of established you know, model that we can go to. There's nothing like in Jude, you know, the really short book right before Revelation that people kind of skip right over because it's so short. It's, there's nothing in there. There's no model in there that says, here's how you set up compensation for ministers. But I'll, I can tell you what we have done. Hopefully that will be you know, helpful, insightful, provide some, some, a certain degree of transparency to how we do it. So obviously we are, we are a church that is under elder rule. We, we are ruled by plurality of elders. There are elders here who are paid staff elders, and there are elders here who are what we call, just for the sake of, not, not designation of difference in authority, but lay elders because they're not on the paid staff of the church. They have employment elsewhere. And so what we have elected to do is to establish a, um, what you might say, a compensation or personnel committee amongst the elders that's comprised of uh, lay elders and three lay elders and two staff elders. Okay? And we basically utilize... A, um, a survey source through LifeWay. And LifeWay, if you're not familiar with LifeWay, LifeWay is a, an entity of the Southern Baptist Convention. So the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in the world. So their capacity to gather data across a broad spectrum of churches, across a broad demographic of churches, is sort of unparalleled, in, particularly in, in, in the Protestant world. And they provide survey data of compensation. So we basically pull, you can, they have really great tools to be able to pull what average compensation is based upon you know, a church attendance, 
uh, annual budget, you know, these kinds of relevant data points that would kind of characterize, you know, what this congregation is and also where it's located. So cost of living implications for where, where you're living. And we, we pull these, these reports down uh, every single year and we evaluate them with the, the lay elders and the, and the two staff elders that are a part of this. And then we look at, for example, cost of living. So we just reference, well, has there been a cost of living adjustment from the Social Security Administration? What's that look like? We just pull in objective, sort of relevant data that kind of informs economic factors, uh, cost of living factors, and that kind of thing. Something else that we've done um, over the course of a number of years, we did this uh, over the course of a number of years recently, uh, we had, uh, you know, we, we analyzed uh, average compensation data, and we felt like that there was some disparity on our staff, um, not intentional. It wasn't anything that kind of was malicious, but it's just, you just kind of start analyzing the data, the data objectively. So we spent a few years trying to rectify some of the compensation disparities with certain, certain people on our staff to get them to where they really should be based upon some of this objective data. So in that particular case, you had some who got raises or increases because they were probably lower than where they should have been based upon this objective data. Uh, others maybe not, didn't get much of a raise at all or didn't get an you know, increase because we were trying to create a certain appropriate parity for the positions that, were, uh, being, that people were serving in. And all this information is viewed in light of our annual budget and those, uh, those men that serve on that committee evaluate it, they can discuss it, and then they either approve it or they don't, and we go back to the drawing board, whatever it might be. That's kind of the way that we do that here, okay? So it's an effort on our part to try to be as objective, and when you think about this, many of you who, are, who work in business and maybe run businesses, I mean, that's kind of what you have to do, right? You have to kind of, what's, what, what can the market bear? What's that position really worth? Well, we try to do that to a certain extent, bringing to bear biblical principles all the way through, not, to, not the least of which is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The Apostle Paul also addresses this in, in uh, 1 Timothy and, and other places. But hopefully that gives you some help, because here's, here in, in this particular section in verse 7, the Apostle Paul makes this a very practical or pragmatic matter. It's a, it's a, it's a matter of custom in society. And he uses the illustration of the soldier and the, the, the farmer... And the shepherd, those who work as a soldier, get compensated for that work. The farmer has every expectation to think that he will get to partake of the produce of his own farming work. And then, of course, the shepherd, the same kind of case with the the produce of the milk from the flock. And then he moves into this other area. This area of the law. So it's not just a matter of apostolic authority. It's not just a matter of common custom. But it's also a matter of Old Testament principle of the law. He says in verse 9, or excuse me, I guess verse 8, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written, verse 9, In the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow and hope that the thresher and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. 
And then he concludes this argument, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So he uses this argument from the law. Simply put, the ox, as he's plowing, you don't put a muzzle on him. You let the ox eat while he's working. You let the ox reap benefit from his work. That's the Old Testament principle here that he's pointing out. So he's basically making this argument that this kind of compensation principle for those who labor in the work of ministry is common. It's a right based upon apostolic authority. I've been called and commissioned by Christ to devote my life to this ministry. It is common custom when you look at other vocations that you can see all around you. It's even referenced in the Old Testament law. So for those Jewish believers that are in the church, you have a reference point for them to look at. And then he kind of rounds out this entire argument from apostolic authority and common custom and from the law to say, if, if, if we have sown spiritual things among you, if, if we have been faithful in our service, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Again, just a very practical point, a very practical principle. And then he broadens it. If others share in this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? So he's actually advocating for a, as I said, at the very beginning of this argument, it's moving toward generosity, and he actually rounds it out here with another reference to generosity. If others share in this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? This could also be an allusion to the fact that you had teachers that would come into these Roman communities and they would establish these little tutelages, these little schools where people would pay them to sort of pontificate around philosophical matters. And oftentimes, these, these people, would, if, they were, if they were articulate, if they had compelling oratory, or they, they were, had a very fascinating and interesting and intriguing sort of philosophical framework that they were putting forward, they would get compensated handsomely for their work among them in the community. Nevertheless, he's pointing to the fact that this particular principle is common, and in fact, you have probably paid, he would say, you have probably been a part of contributing to the compensation for other teachers who have come into Corinth propagating ideologies and philosophies that are not redemptive and that are not the gospel. And so he says, would we not be entitled even more? But I want to cap off our our thinking at this point, and then we'll pick it back up next week. he's, he's, He's insisting that this is a right. This, This is not some kind of wish. It's not some kind of hope on his part. It is a right. But here in the second part of verse 12, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So the point of his argument is found there. He's not putting forward this mindset of being enriched by the gospel ministry. He's putting forward an argument based upon legitimate grounding that he is entitled to remuneration that he set aside knowing what he was contending with with the people in Corinth. And that's the fundamental point here. 
In other words, this gets at the heart of a true spiritual leader in their thinking around compensation. What I can tell you, and if you want to ask other, other elders in the church, what I can tell you is that no one on this staff has lobbied for anything in my experience since I've been here, ever. Not a thing. There's never been a case where someone has said, I'm just not getting paid enough. I mean, you know, I need a raise or I'm going to have to move on. I'm going to find something else. In fact, there's a joy in just serving the body of Christ here and just being grateful for whatever the Lord provides. And the Lord provides very graciously to, to our, our staff. But the heart or the attitude here is, if, if it was a problem, I, okay, it's not going to be a problem for me. All that to say, the Apostle Paul is continuing to press this point to the Corinthians and by extension to us. That we are called to be characterized in the local assembly as men and women who gladly and willingly lay down our rights as a demonstration of the true freedom that we have experienced in Christ. True freedom in Christ is not characterized by a claiming and demanding of one's rights, of of a flaunting exhibition of one's rights. True freedom, he who the Lord has set free is free indeed. That kind of freedom is characterized by men and women in the local congregation who are glad and joyful to lay aside their liberties if it means to strengthen the conscience, strengthen the maturity, strengthen the faithfulness, help move someone along in Christian maturity, remove any hindrances from gospel effectiveness in the local church. If that's what it requires for me to lay aside this right, then that's what we'll do. Not a problem. I won't eat meat again, he says, if that's what I need to do. And as I said, as we introduced this particular section a number of weeks ago, we need to reminded of this principle because we we live in a day and a time and even in a nation where our rights are to be defended and called out and claimed and please don't infringe upon my rights or I'm going to lose it kind of thing. That's the ethos of of our experience here. And we have to be very careful that we don't allow that kind of ethos to seep into our interactions and dealings with one another in the exercise of our Christian liberties. There should be a willing laying down of those rights if it helps move someone along in faithfulness and advance the gospel. Well, we'll continue this next time. Let's pray.